0: I always enjoy starting off our church year. That's the Our church year always begins about well, usually the following week after Thanksgiving where we start anticipating uh, the scriptures, teaching about the Advent, the first Advent of our Lord Jesus. And those of you who have been here a while know that then, till that time next year, we go through the whole life of Jesus. And then we focus also on the attributes of God and the doctrines of grace And then we get into the second coming of Christ, and then we're right back to the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, we've done that for years now, and uh, it's a joy to my heart to begin the church here every year, here at Emmanuel, and know that we get to, once again for the next year, celebrate the life and work of our Lord Jesus. This morning, we're going to be doing some of that in the message, because I want to talk about Something I talk about occasionally, I just devote a topical sermon to prayer. Seems to me like this is a good time for that. Uh, I'm thinking next week maybe to have a sermon on trials and having joy in trials, because we could probably all be reminded of that, stand a reminder of that as well. Um, I'd like to just read one passage, though, to show us one example of prayer and why it's so important. And then I'll open with prayer as always. This is uh, what uh, the Sons of Korah wrote. Undoubtedly, uh, a few of them, because it's plural here, Sons of Korah wrote it. uh, We're going through some rough times and got together under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to talk about how God had led them through them. And they wrote us a beautiful song about it. And it begins this way in Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, Oh, God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? They were going through some deep trials and people were looking at them. If you read the whole psalm and sort of mocking them, you know, if God loves you, why are you going through so much difficulty? But this didn't drive them away from God. This, this made them long for him even more. And that's what they're expressing here. And then they say, when I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. And they did that in prayer. And then they wrote that prayer in this beautiful poem for God's people to sing. So if you ever struggle with what to pray and how to pray, just remember there's lots of prayers in the Bible like that for you to pray. And you can't go wrong with prayer and scripture. More on that later. But you can see why prayer is so important, right? It's in these difficult times we need to cry out to God. But it's sometimes in these difficult times that we don't do that, or maybe it's the last thing we do, when it should be the first thing we do. And so this morning, I'd just like to remind you why that's so important. Let's pray in. As for the filling of the Holy Spirit to understand what Scripture says about these important topics, prayer and trials. Holy Father, I do thank you so much for your great love for us. I thank you that after so many years of patient waiting, your people got to see the coming of the Lord Jesus. That there was a remnant that you preserved, Joseph and Mary and Elizabeth and John the Baptist and the disciples and Simeon and Anna and the shepherds. And there were plenty of people that recognized Jesus at his first coming, who he was, because they were looking to your word and trusting in your word and waiting for your promises. And we're in the same position now, waiting for our Lord's return. And as they prayed with expectation, when shall I see my God? We are still praying that way today. When shall we see him? We long to see him face to face. Lord, help us to learn how to better pray with that same mindset that you gave your people of old. Fill us now with your spirit and with understanding so that we might better hear what you have to say to us through your word. And help me, Lord, through all of my struggles to clearly proclaim it. I ask these things, In the name of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, amen. As uh, most of you know, we have uh, adopted an amended version of the Baptist Confession of 1689. You're going to see a quotation of this if you look in your bulletins this morning. I've got a pretty strong outline, I think, of what I'm going to be doing this morning. So it's going to be easy for you to follow. I have so many scriptures that I have all the citations there for you so that if you can't look them up with me now and you just want to listen, you can look them up again later. Um, but I have this quotation for you there as well. Um, In our confession, we find the following discussion of means of grace that are appointed of God to help increase our faith. And here's what it says. And as we go through the teaching this morning, you'll see that what it says is biblical and that's why we hold to it, right? Um, The grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word, by which also, and by the administration of baptism and the Lord's supper, prayer, and other means appointed of God, it is increased and strengthened. Now these means by which God increases and strengthens our faith have often been referred to as means of grace uh, because they are the means by which God graciously enables us to grow and by which we are more fully able to experience his grace in our lives. So that's a pretty good term for it, means of grace, right? Uh, Prayer is one of these means of grace and it's a very important one, which is where we're constantly commanded or encouraged to pray in scripture. I just read you uh, Psalm 42, that psalm is encouraging us to pray, to go to God and setting the example for us. But I'm also reminded of uh, what the Apostle Paul says, for example, in First Thessalonians five, sixteen through 18, where he says, rejoice always. Maybe we'll talk about that more next week, about rejoicing in trials. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, given the importance of prayer, though, why do we oftentimes fail to pray? Even though we know that we ought to pray. And that's the first question and a series of questions I'm going to be asking and answering this morning. And you can see in the notes there, I'm really just asking a number of questions and trying to give biblical answers to them. Why do we oftentimes fail to pray even though that we should pray and that it's good for us to pray? Well, I'd like to aid you all in thinking about this by listing some of the common reasons for lack of prayer that believers might give in response to this question. I'm indebted here to D.A. Carson for his help in this regard in his book entitled A Call to Spiritual Reformation. It's a very good book. He lists some typical reasons Christians often give for their failure to pray, And uh, perhaps you and I found ourselves using one or more of these reasons uh, from time to time. And so listen closely to each one and think of your own prayer life. The first one is this, I feel too spiritually dry to pray. The second one, I'm too busy to pray. That's a very common one. The third one, though people don't often admit it, I am too bitter to pray. Most people that are too bitter to pray won't dare admit it. And usually it's, they're upset with God's handling of their life in some way, right? As though they could do better. Um, fourth, I am too ashamed to pray. Actually, that's a fairly common one in my experience, not only in my own personal life, but in dealing with so many people. Here's another one, the fifth one. I'm afraid God won't hear or answer my prayers. And often that really means I want him to answer him in a certain way and I'm afraid he won't. I'm afraid he'll do what I really need instead of what I want kind of thing, but they won't admit that either. There's other motives behind some of these reasons, right, Uh, usually lurking beneath the surface. Uh, The sixth one and the final one I'll suggest uh, from from page 111 of, of his book, Carson's book, I feel like I don't know where to start or what to say like my prayers aren't good enough. I've run across that quite a few times in my work as a pastor over the years as well. Now, All of these so-called reasons for failure to pray are really just excuses, aren't they? And they're excuses which demonstrate a need for a deeper understanding and experience of God's grace. But ironically, it's the very means of grace which can provide relief to these problems and weaknesses that is being avoided, namely prayer. So you see people getting themselves into a vicious cycle. Prayer will solve the problems that keep them from praying, but the things that keep them from praying stop them from praying to solve the problems that keep them from praying, and they're in this vicious cycle. And and you know how you can end it. Pray. (laughs) You can just Pray. Uh, so hopefully this morning, I can encourage you to do that, all of us, because I certainly need this encouragement often. So that's what I want to do this morning, to remind us all of some of the Bible's encouragements to pray. And I want to share especially some of the passages that I have personally found the most helpful in encouraging me to pray. There's a lot of passages we could look at in scripture, including in the Psalms uh, that I read from earlier. But these are the ones that seem to motivate me the best to pray, and so I hope they'll do the same for you. Uh, I want to begin with what has been for me one of the truly great encouragements to pray, and that is the work of the Lord Jesus as our great high priest. And for this, we'll turn to the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 2. Now, those of you who have been around here for the past 30 years or so know that I like to go to this passage It's so encouraging to me. (laughs) Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 14, says this. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, that's all of us, he himself likewise shared in the saying, referring to our Lord Jesus, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And that's all of us. We're children of Abraham by faith. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren. It was necessary. The incarnation was necessary for our salvation. It says that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And most of you should remember, propitiation refers to a wrath-ending sacrifice, a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. And that's what Jesus did on the cross when he bore God's wrath for our sins. In fact, it was the cup of wrath that was going to be poured out on him that he was talking about in the Garden of Gethsemane when he said, remember what he prayed? If it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He was using a figure of speech that comes from the Old Testament about the cup of God's wrath. And that's what propitiation is talking about. Jesus bore the wrath of God in our place for our sins. For that, we're told he had to become like one of us. He had to become a human being. And then it says, for in that he himself suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. here we are assured that Jesus knows what it is to suffer temptation. So even in times of great temptation, who better to turn to than him? I'm reminded here of a promise we have from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Can the way of escape of which Paul speaks be anything other than the one provided in Christ Jesus? Can it be anything other than to cry out in prayer to our Lord Jesus, who as our great high priest knows better than anyone how hard temptations can be? After all, Our Lord Jesus is the only one who's overcome every temptation without sin. So he alone can give us the strength we need to overcome temptation as well. I don't know about you, but uh, if 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 I want to know how to do something right, I go to the one person who's done it perfectly. If I want to help to overcome something, I want to go to the one person who's been able to do it. That's what we're encouraged to do. But what, what about when we're tempted not to pray in spite of what we know to be true about our relationship with God and about what Jesus has done as our great high priest? Well, I think the author of Hebrews would say that Jesus understands even this temptation, the temptation not to pray. When we know it's good for us, when we know that we should. Consider, for example, what he says later in chapter four, Hebrews four, verses 14 and 15. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, again referring to our Lord Jesus, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, who is in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. If Jesus was tempted in all points as we are, then we may assume that he too was tempted not to pray even when he knew that he needed to and that he should. And we must assume that he overcame every single one of those temptations because that's what it says. He never sinned. He did pray when he should pray. He overcame the temptation not to pray. We should also assume that he sympathizes with us even in this weakness with which we so often struggle. But if we understand this, then we will want to pray to him, won't we? Isn't this what the author of Hebrews assumes in the very next verse, when he says in verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That word boldly means with a strong confidence. What he's saying here is, I'm giving you reasons to feel confident to come to Jesus in prayer by telling you the kind of high priest that he is. That he's the one who understands all that you're going through. That he's the one who's endured every kind of temptation and overcome it. He's the one you can turn to and not away from when you're struggling. What an encouragement. So there you have it. An understanding of Jesus' role as our great high priest will help us to overcome our tendency to avoid coming before the throne of grace in prayer. Indeed, notice that his royal throne is called a throne of grace. Precisely because that is where we come to find the grace we need in every situation and for any and every temptation as well. Prayer is thus a means of grace because it is how we fully depend upon God's grace and also how we receive more of his grace. But such an approach to Jesus entails that we trust him rather than ourselves. And that means it entails humility on our part. As the apostle Peter teaches us in 1 Peter 5, verses five through seven, when he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another, and be clothed with humility. We can't submit to one another as we should unless we're humble. But people have a hard time fulfilling this command to submit to one another. The real problem is that they have a hard time submitting to God, and that's what he gets to here. Because it's God who says to submit to one another in these ways. And he says, be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, citing Proverbs 3.34. Therefore, he says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at due time. Why do people not want to humble themselves before one another? Because they're so worried about exalting themselves, that's why. He says, let God worry about that. He knows what exaltation he wants to do in you. Let him worry about it. One day we'll be glorified. That's when we'll be exalted. We'll be like Jesus. Can't get any more exalted than that, right? That'll happen one day. For now, he says, your, your goal shouldn't be trying to exalt yourself. Your goal should be humbling yourselves and let God worry about the kind of exaltation that ought to be brought to you. And we know what that is ultimately if we read the whole of scripture. And he says this, casting your care upon him. For he cares for you. Notice how he reminds them, for he cares for you. Why do sometimes Christians refuse to humble themselves before the Lord and cast their cares on him? And trust him with their problems and to try to hand, instead of try to handle themselves. Because of pride. Because of pride. And then, and in their pride, they forget that God does care for us. See, we think we care more about our own issues than he does. In our pride. You see what Peter's doing here? He's trying to get rid of these nonsensical, godless ways of thinking and teach us to be humble before God. Now, we may give many of the reasons or excuses previously mentioned for not praying, but in the end, here's the real issue. We're too proud. And we just got to admit it. And some people say, well, pride's not my problem. It's because I have an inferiority complex. Well, that's one of the more insidious ways that pride shows itself I met a guy many years ago who said you know I don't understand Christians who struggle with pride I've never had that issue and he said it with a straight face and he was very sincere and I just I I think I didn't respond to him at the time but I should have said this have you ever sinned in any way or do you ever still struggle with sin in any way And if he's got enough humility to say, yeah, I do, the next response would be, then you have pride. Because every sin is because of pride. And I can prove that very easily from the Bible, right? But that guy was self-deceived. And Peter would say, don't be self-deceived. Recognize your issue is pride. That we when you don't want to do what God tells you to do, it's because you're prideful. the only answer to that is humble yourself and believe that he cares for you the way he says he does. Believe that his plan to exalt you is is true and trust him with your life, right? So Peter certainly thought pride is the problem and he knew that such pride keeps us from experiencing more fully the grace of God in our lives. Remember, he he cited Psalm 334, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. But such pride will also keep us from experiencing the peace of God that Paul, our departed brother Paul, teaches us that we may find in prayer. So let's consider briefly what he says to the Philippian believers in this regard. In Philippians 4, 6 and 7. He writes this, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, remember what he said in 1 Thessalonians, praying always, right? But in everything by prayer and supplication, With thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Notice that Paul says not only that we may know the peace of God through prayer, a peace, he says, that surpasses understanding. That's an important statement there. Um, Many of us have experienced such peace. Peace that we didn't expect when we cried out to God and cast our cares upon him and prayed about something and relied on him and trusted him, we had, even in a really difficult situation, we experienced a peace that caught us even off guard. We didn't expect to have peace. We're so used to being anxious. But there it was. A peace that could only have come through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can't, Paul says, you can't explain this. Right? You've got to experience this to know it. It surpasses our understanding. It's something only God can do in us. Something that can't be faked either. Notice he also says that it will guard our hearts and minds. In other words, I think we can say at the very least that his peace will provide spiritual protection for us from the anxieties that tempt us not to trust in him as we ought to. It'll at least do that given the context, right? I always think now, I can't, ever since Pastor Ben preached on this, every time I look at this passage, I think the same thing. I think of what Pastor Ben said. We will be anxious for nothing when we pray about everything. And that is a good summary of what Paul is saying here. It's the best, most succinct summary I've ever heard anyone say about what Paul's saying here. We will be anxious for nothing when we pray about everything. It is persistent prayer that brings the peace of God to our hearts. But notice also that Paul says that our prayers and supplications should be accompanied by thanksgiving in everything. This means that we must approach God in prayer, not just as the one who can help us, but remembering he's the one who already has helped us. By praying always with thanksgiving, what's Paul doing here? He's building in a motivation to keep praying. If you're focused on thanking God for what he's already done, remembering all the grace he's already shown you while you're praying, aren't you going to be encouraged to pray even more? To trust him even more? That's why Thanksgiving is so important. Besides that, even more importantly, God deserves to be thanked. And it's a sin not to thank him for what he's done. It robs him of the glory that's due him and subtly sort of takes credit for how good things are for ourselves, right? When away from him. So if we're grateful for what he's already done, we'll be ready to receive more from him. But what if we struggle with feelings like our prayers aren't good enough. That was one of the reasons it was given. And it's such a common one that I wanted to focus on it. What if we struggle with feeling like our prayers aren't good enough? What should we do then? I have several suggestions here. First, we should begin by frankly admitting that our prayers aren't good enough in and of themselves, and they never will be. That's not a bad thing to realize. The person that says, I don't feel like my prayers are good enough, I'm like, that's the first thing you should think. Because that's that's humility. <laughs> that's that's a good place to be if you feel that way. I'm very hopeful that you feel that way. Good on you. That's the work of God in your heart, showing you that you need His grace. So that's a good place to, to begin. Uh, after all, we're our, our, we don't approach God on our own merits anyway. It's through our great High Priest. Remember. We're told to come boldly before the throne of grace, not the throne of works righteousness. Second, we should remember that we have many examples of how to pray in scripture, such as the prayers of Jesus that have been recorded for us, uh, along with what's often called the Lord's Prayer, uh, which may serve as as a very good outline for how to pray. If you wonder how to pray, get out the Lord's Prayer and use it as your outline for prayer. Can't do better than that. Can't say my prayer's not acceptable then, right? <laughs> um, we also have many other prayers of faithful saints in Scripture, and I read one of them earlier from Psalm 42. Uh, not to mention the many psalms that serve as models for prayer in many diverse situations ranging from the proper expression of joy and thanksgiving to pleas for help in the midst of great despair. So, first of all, recognize your prayers never will be good enough. That's okay, because we're saved by grace. God accepts our prayers by grace, not because of how good they are. They'll never be good enough. And secondly, we have lots of good things we can pray in Scripture to help us to learn to pray well. Third, we need to remember two really crucial and important facts about are praying and who's praying with us and for us Christians need to remember we are never praying alone even if we're by ourselves and no other people are with us You got to keep that in mind when you pray you are never alone as a Christian Jesus is praying for you first of all In Romans 8:31 through 34 we read this What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's like saying, can you think of anyone greater than God? If the answer to that is no, (laughs) right? Which it has to be, then nobody can be against you, right? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with us also freely give us, or with him rather, freely give us all things? Who should bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The only one who can really bring a charge against us that will stick is God. And he's so far from doing that that he gave his one and only son for our sins. Not to do that, right? Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. Jesus is always interceding for us. When we start to pray about our lives, all we're doing is joining with him and what he's already doing for us. We are not praying alone, ever. I don't know about you, but if I know that Jesus is right there by my side praying for me, it doesn't matter how good or bad my prayers are. His prayers will make up for everything. Again, looking to Jesus, right, as our great high priest, that's a strong motivation to pray. The Holy Spirit is also praying for us. Remember, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit as, as believers. Romans eight twenty six through twenty seven says, Likewise the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Paul's saying it right there. We never pray like we should, really. (laughs) Not perfectly, at least, right? But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. He he speaks in a language we couldn't speak in, right? Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit is always making sure that our, our prayers get translated into the perfect will of God. We're not alone when we pray. Even if there are no other people with us, right? That we can see. We have Jesus with us and we have the Holy Spirit within us. Isn't it encouraging to know that God loves us so much that he has ensured that our prayers will always be heard by him. But then what about the effect of sin on our prayer life? Somebody will say, well, but doesn't the Bible say that sin can keep God from hearing our prayers? The answer is that is yes, it does. So we need to deal with sin and its effects on our prayer life. And so... Here's some subject, some su- su- suggestions, there I got the word out, suggestions from scripture about that. First, just as with my previous suggestions, we need to begin with acknowledging that, yeah, sin can and does affect our prayer life. Uh, husbands, remember what Peter says, that if you're not loving your wife like you should, that God's not going to hear your prayers. Yeah, sin can affect our prayer life. The psalmist says, for example, in Psalm sixty-six eighteen. 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, and that's important what he says there, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, he's not talking about being free completely from it. He's talking about wanting to hang on to it, right? If I had wanted to hang on to iniquity in my heart is a a way we could say that. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. In other words, if uh, you're coming, for example, and saying, Lord, free me from sin, and in your heart, you don't want that at all. (laughs) That kind of hypocrisy isn't tolerated by God. And so he'll withdraw from you. And that's a form of discipline when that happens. There's nothing more miserable, I don't think, than a true believer that begins to lack assurance of salvation because of cherished sin, and because God disciplines them by lifting that assurance, and then what do they do? If they're a true, they cry out to Him and repent. God is so loving in this; He does deal with our sin. He doesn't leave us in that state. So that's the first one. We just need to acknowledge that it can and does affect our prayer life, if we cherish sin in our heart. Second, we must acknowledge our sins before God and seek his forgiveness, but we mustn't fear that if we haven't been uh, able to think of every sin we've committed, he still won't hear us. We just can't cherish sin in our hearts You know, I may be in a position where I genuinely want to turn away from the sin that I know that I'm committing, but that doesn't mean I'm aware even of all the sins I'm committing. But they're not there because I love them so much I won't give them up. I'm just not aware of how sinful I really am. I've learned in my life as a Christian that growth in the Christian life really is learning more and more just how sinful I really am day by day. And just how deeply I really need God's grace. And I'm so grateful to him that he doesn't show me all my sin at once. I would truly despair. But the process of sanctification is him revealing more and more and training us more and more, right? To overcome sin. He's gracious that way. So we don't have to think that we have to come with perfectly sinless hearts to be heard by God. But we have to remember, we can't want to hang on to our sin when we come to him. We can't come to him with a divided heart like Saul, half-hearted, pretending we want his grace when deep down we don't want it at all and then think he's going to show it to us. What he'll do in his grace is discipline us for that because he loves us. And we we never really know, as I said, just how sinful our hearts are anyway. As the Lord said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, a lot of people quote Jeremiah 17, 9 and forget to quote verse 10. Um, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? That makes it sound like no one. But the next verse says there is someone. God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. There is one person alone who can know how sinful your heart is, and it isn't you. It's God. So even though we can't fully know the wickedness within our hearts, God does know, and he can reveal to us those things which are impediments to our relationship with him as we need them to be revealed. Remember what? how David taught us to pray in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. He wrote this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Why did he do that? David knew he didn't know his own heart. Only God did. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me. He knows there's gonna be wickedness in him that he's unaware of. And that only God can know it and show it to him. And then he says, and lead me in the way everlasting. He's trusting God to do this for him. But remember also that David teaches us that there will inevitably still be sins of which we're unaware. And thus in Psalm 19.12, he teaches us to pray, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. And sometimes, you know, I often pray that when I come to say to partake of the Lord's Supper. Lord, I've examined myself. I'm unaware of any sin I need to repent of before I partake, and I want to partake in a worthy manner. But I know there's a lot of secret faults that I'm unaware of, that you know of. Forgive those too. And of course he does. Of course he does. Those are under the blood of Jesus. And thank God that he forgives us even of the sins that we're unaware of. (laughs) And David counted on him for that. Show me the sins that I need to be aware of. And the rest of them, Lord, David would say, cleanse me from those two. So with all of this in mind, everything we've looked at in scripture, thought about, and I've tried to suggest to you that have helped me to pray more. Um, Let's reconsider a few of of the reasons slash excuses not to pray that were previously mentioned. How about this one? For those of us who say, I feel too spiritually dry to pray. I ask, isn't sincere prayer the answer for this problem? If you feel too spiritually dry to pray, then pray about that. Just say, God, I feel so dry. I feel like I can't pray. Help me. That's a prayer. Uh, Maybe you just need to do as, as the one father did when he came to Jesus. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. You know what? That's a prayer of faith. Asking for more of it. After all, he's turning to Jesus. And so some of us, when we feel so dry, too dry to pray, or like God is so distant, well, pray about that. For those of us who say, I am too busy to pray, here's the truth of it. You're too busy not to pray. and seek God's grace and power to help you with whatever your busy schedule is. People who say that often find time for the things that really matter to them, by the way. And it's easy to work prayer into your life. You can pray whenever you're driving somewhere, uh, while you're waiting in line somewhere. There's lots of opportunities to pray. Pray. Even if you don't have a quiet time in the morning, you can still work prayer into your life. It's good to be disciplined and pray every morning. I would recommend that highly. But if you're struggling with that, just pray when you can, whenever you can. For those to say I'm too bitter to pray, I'm I'm disappointed with God's not answering my prayers the way I want. I would say to you that you need to remember that God has given his son Jesus to be your great high priest. He knows far more what's best for you than you do. And if you are bitter about how he's conducting your life and how he's working in your life, that's a sin you need to repent of and do it now. And remember this, it is always a sin to be angry at God because anger at God assumes he, he did something wrong. People who are bitter and angry at God are sinning and they need to pray par- prayers of repentance and say, well, I'm not going to pray to him because he doesn't, he doesn't do what I want. That is such unbelief. And it is such a demeaning way to think about God. And uh, you just, what you should pray is, He doesn't give you what you deserve for thinking that way. So, yeah, I had to challenge that one head on. It's just flat out sin. There's no way around that. We could go on, but I think we have sufficiently seen that, uh, ironically, perhaps. It's the very means of grace that can provide relief to all of these problems and weaknesses that is being avoided. Prayer. So I would just finish today by saying, resolve with me, please, today, that through the Holy Spirit's power, we'll devote ourselves more fully to prayer. Let's resolve anew to humble ourselves to live in humble dependence upon our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Believing that he really does care for us and that he's proven it as our great high priest. Believing that he knows what we're going through and he's the only one who can help us. Believing that his plan is always best for us, even if we can't see in the moment how it is so. As one person said, sometimes when we can't seem to trust his hand, we can always trust his heart. Right? We always know that he wants best for us, despite how perplexed we are by what's going on in our lives. We'll talk some more about that next week when we talk about rejoicing in trials. Let's pray. Holy Father, it is my hope that I've been able to, by by your grace and for your glory and for all of our good, remind myself and everyone here today that we have a great high priest who's always praying with us and for us. And that we can just join right in with him anytime we want, however feeble we feel we are in our prayers. And know that by your grace, they'll be accepted. And that we need not fear that sin will keep you from hearing us if we're trusting our great high priest as the one who is the propitiation for our sins and through whom we can be forgiven for our sins. And when we're trusting you as the one who can reveal to us our sins as we need to know them, as we grow in Christ and are conformed more and more to his image. Forgive us for the sin of pride that causes us to turn away from you when we need to be turning to you always. Forgive us for that, I pray. And strengthen us. We live in such a wicked generation and we need to be in constant communion with you to survive it. Thank you that you've made it really so easy to do that to come with great confidence before your throne of grace. Lord, if, if there's anyone here this morning who, who hasn't come to know you as their Lord and Savior, it's our prayer that you would do for him or her what you have done for us, that you would grant them faith and repentance, that they would see Jesus for who he really is, as the one who became a man, and who was fully God and fully man and that he died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead that we might have everlasting life and that we can have salvation as a free gift and forgiveness for all our sins and have the hope of a future in heaven with you. We thank you for all you do in answer to these prayers because you alone deserve all the glory and praise for what you do in our lives and for anything good in us. We pray these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you once again for your kind attention.